Hello there. I'm Robert Ross. I've been writing about comedy since the mid-1990s, uh, published books on various subjects ranging from the carry-ons to Monty Python to Marty Feldman to Benny Hill and all the other in between. Um, also written several radio plays for the Doctor Who team. Um, and I'm here to basically plug my new book, which is called The Forgotten Hills of Comedy, which is uh, pretty self-explanatory. It's about comedies and comedians that have been forgotten. Um, so, uh, yes, if you want to join, join me, um, I'm here chatting away about all things comedy. And you can follow me forevermore on Twitter at Robert W. Ross Esquire. So, Robert, when did you first start getting into comedy? Um, I suppose, like anybody obsessed with comedy, which I am obsessed with comedy, it starts really early on, and it's my parents' fault, God bless them. Um, I think they worked out fairly early on that I would stop crying if they put me in front of the TV, and I got obsessed with who I saw as uncle and aunt figures like Morecambe and Wise and the two Ronnies and Frankie Howard and Sid James and Hattie Jakes and people. And they, I mean, you know, I'm not old, but they, they repeated a lot of these old films and TV shows. And I would watch things with my parents. Um, my dad was obsessed with The Goon Show in particular and would illegally tape stuff off the BBC. So sort of they would repeat them on radio and he would get his old reel-to-reel machine and tape The Goon Show and Hancock's Half Hour and Round the Horn, all this old classic radio comedy, which became my sort of lullabies in a way I would sort of get played to sleep with those things um so it's 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 inbred in my head now um and I never really wanted to be a comedian I wanted to write about it that was that was what I, I thought I would do is to sort of like champion a bit like what you want to do really champion people who could do it because I, I did try at a university a bit of stand-up comedy and a bit of amateur dramatics and I was pretty awful at it so I thought I should just write about good people uh, which I've, I've been doing ever since really and so what was your first gig like at university awful <laughs> um i i joined I, the only reason i joined and you go to the fresh freshers ball or the freshers week and you you've got to join something and i i'm being completely shameless here i joined the amateur dramatics or the drama club because the girls were prettier basically and i thought oh i joined that that's, a, that's an in to talk to girls um and that was it and i did a few bits and bobs for, for in the plays i was i was um um dr polidori in bloody poetry and um, I got all the sort of nerdy, sort of you know, semi-stupid comedy parts, which were okay. I mean, I, I was okay at it, but I wasn't, I wasn't brilliant. And I did a couple of stand-up gigs, which I wrote some stuff, which was awful. Um, but I realised you know, early on that um, I was not destined to be on the stage, so I, I sort of gave up or just you know, sat back and I directed some. There's some rubbishy review thing we did which I directed, which I thought I might go into that, but that didn't really work out either. So I thought, no, I'll just stick to writing. I really liked writing. So I, I, I started writing sort of reviews of films and, and, and stage plays I saw and, and comedy shows and things. So that's how it started. And so did you find that when you were a child that there were other kids at school watching comedy as obsessively as you were? No. Um, I was a bit of a nerd character, really. Um, I also loved Doctor Who as well, which which... Back when I was a kid in the sort of late seventies, early eighties, was not as nerdy as it, as it became, I suppose, because um, it was on TV then, and people did watch it on a Saturday afternoon. Um, comedy, yeah, I, I think I think the only time I was actually reasonably cool was when the young ones started in eighty two, when I was about eleven or something or twelve, and um, then every kid in the school watched that because that was the sort of the, the anti-establishment sort of you know up yours sort of Thatcher sort of comedy. So. Um, that was cool. But, you know, it, when I was watching that, I was also watching the carry-on films and watching old repeats of Monty Python, and my dad was showing me George Formby and Will Hay films from the 1930s. So, you know, although I had sort of part comedy cool, I was also mainly comedy nerd. 
and I just watch stuff. I mean, I think, you know, that's what you need to do. Like we were talking before, you just need to watch stuff. And I just watched everything. I mean, I watched all sorts of old films. I, I, I used to watch um, comedies as a rule and, and Walt Disney as a kid. But then I saw a film called Sergeant York, which is a 1940s Hollywood, not a comedy, a, a drama. And I just fell in love with old films. But I had no sort of gauge of what was good or what was bad. I just watched everything. So I watched complete rubbish, um, which I still love, like Edward films, like the Plan of Matter Space and that sort of stuff, and Bride of the Monster. I would watch that the same week I watched Gone with the Wind or Casablanca. So I had no sort of gauge of what was good or what was bad. I just loved watching films. Um, and I think you've got to do that. You've just got to watch everything. Um, I hate that term, guilty pleasure, because there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. If it's your pleasure, then it's not guilty. You know, enjoy your pleasures, really. So that's why my first thing was I, I felt like um, I had to... Um, celebrate the underdog of Carry On is in the 80s they stopped making them they were on TV all the time but they were always given like one star out of five in the Radio Times or TV Times guides and I thought these are actually you know for what they were trying to do these are bloody good films so that was my first thing to try and champion them which I did uh, in the first book I did which took me about 10 years to, to get published but that's another longer story and so at what point did you decide I want to go into comedy um, I, I was probably when I was sort of like, you know, early on, I, I five or six or something, I just felt like I want to do, I want to be involved in this world. It was a sort of lovely world of, of people looking happy and it was colourful and people laughed and it was, you know, it just, it's it's that simple really. It's almost like your, your first pantomime. I remember my first pantomime would have been about that time too. And you just think, my God, this is a, a fantasy world, you know, everybody's sort of smiling and falling in love and singing songs. And, and I just thought that's what I want to be involved in somehow. Um, and like I said, I was never good enough to perform, but I wanted to sort of celebrate how the, the feeling that gave me. And, and what I try and do for the, through the books I write is that to try and capture, without analysing too seriously what makes things funny, just try and capture the sheer joy it gives me, um, which is, you know, intense, really. It just, just fills me with, with great pleasure, comedy. I love it. And so you were saying that you've published lots of books about comedy and you've published on um, the Carry On films and the Monty Python Encyclopedia and Forty Towers. So what was it about these shows that hooked you in? Um, I just uh, I thought they were funny. I mean, I, I, te- I've, I, mean, I wrote the, the, the Carry On Companion, as I say, over a long period of time. I wrote it in the late 80s, really. Um, I was corresponding with Kenneth Williams and Kenneth Williams died in April 1988. Um and then I was corresponding with people like Frankie Howard and, and Bernard Cribbins and these sort of people around that time too. And I thought, oh, I'm in here. This is guaranteed, you know, no problem. I've got these famous people supporting this book. And I just couldn't get a publisher for love nor money. Uh, and then 1992, they did another film. I thought, this is oh, guaranteed, shoo-in. Carry On Columbus was being made. I thought this is going to be a, an easy sell. Couldn't sell it then. I finally sold it in 1995 um, to a publisher called called BT Batsfords and it was just a, a, a say um, a love letter to the carry-ons and Monty Python was the same Monty Python used to scare the bejesus out of me as a kid Terry Gilliams's cartoons you swine Terry um, used to really scare me because they were horrible you know there were people watching TV and things coming out the screen and, and taking people's eyeballs out and this sort of stuff you know and my dad would let me stay up late and watch those repeats on telly so I fell in love with that. The goodies was a thing from my childhood in the 70s, which I, again was very underrated and, 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 and not celebrated and not shown on TV for a long, long time. So I just, you know, I just, I, I, I personally loved things and I wanted to share the love, really. I'm that sort of soppy character. Um, so what I tried to do in the books was, was, was capture how I felt when I first watched them and, and, and analyze them to a degree about, you know, why they were important in history of comedy. But, 
you, you can never work out what makes things laugh because you know you'd laugh at something different that I would laugh at. So it's just a case of of my personal you know my personal sort of um, giggle box being exposed to the nation. I suppose. Did you find that when you were writing about these shows with and watching them with more of a critical eye, did that have an impact on the way you then perceive the shows? Yeah, I think it made me like them even more. Really, it, 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 once you sort of look into the mechanics of a watch, you know, and you marvel about how that works, and you try. I always, I always try and work out how I'm um, this old folks. How VHSs work? How, how does videotape work? And how can you how can you press record and and tape the television show there? And it's on tape forever. Um, so once you look at comedy in that way, without going too deeply into it, but but just understanding how the people's minds were working when they wrote the stuff, you know, to sit down with Terry Jones and Mike Palin and, and actually, you know, try and figure out how they worked together. And um, two of my big heroes, Golden and Simpson, who wrote Hancock's Half Hour and Steptoe and Son, you know, how they wrote was different to how Mike and Terry wrote. Um, they were two, two great double acts in terms of writing comedy, but they worked in different ways. So, so just trying to figure that out. Um, and it's just, just, you know, a joy to watch people at the peak of their game acting and and being funny so uh, yeah i mean i I, every every passing year i just am more in awe of these people um so you know these heroes of mine from my youth have uh, are now on pedestals how do you feel that modern british sitcoms have changed over the past few decades (coughs) oh yeah that's a tricky question um they, the, the truth is they probably haven't changed that much. Uh, I mean, I did a thing for one of the papers a few years ago where you could pretty much draw parallels with the great sitcoms of the 60s and 70s with, with comedies of today, and I'm talking about today in the last sort of five years or so. You know, if you look at something like My Family, which has been put to the sword now, not before long, um, but before time even, but um, My Family is basically, bless his house, the Sid James comedy from the 70s, but done now. It's just, you know... a a married couple who have kids who have the generation gap comedy um you look to stuff like the royal family from the 90s the royal family was pretty much just um to death do part you know it's just a family family arguing in the in the sitting room um anything ricky gervais does is pretty much tony hancock it's just this this isolated sort of loser character that fights against the rest of the world so any comedy you know it, it always goes around in circles really um it's when something comes along that's that's completely unique, um, something like Psychoville, which obviously had its feet wet from League of Gentlemen, but that was that was quite you know important to to mix horror and comedy in the same show, and that was done really well. But you know it's it's nothing new under the sun really. It's just the same old thing that they try and any any show now that commissions on say BBC would commission, they're they're trying to find something to beat Channel 4's programs and vice versa commission editors and corporations that broadcast things are like sheep they just want to get the next thing that's a little bit like the big hit so yeah that's that's always been the case there it's not a new thing do you think that there's going to be a new direction for british sitcoms i i don't know i mean uh you sort of hope something's going to come along, but then again, you know, I'm not one of these these people who re- who wear rose tinted glasses. That I think everything in the 70s was wonderful because there was a lot of dross in the 70s, and you know, although some of it is historically important for the times for for programs like that being actually made and and being commissioned, that's interesting to a degree. They're not funny, and if they were ever funny, that's a question too. But but now there's some really good stuff about too so you know there's no such thing as a golden age of, of comedy um people wax lyrical about the 70s the 70s 
the people like Morecambe and Wise were getting huge figures because there were less channels. Um, they were very good. I'm not saying they weren't good. They were brilliant. But there were only three channels, you know, um, at their peak. So obviously, when you've got so much fragmentation in, in broadcasting now and, and so many channels and so much access to archive stuff on DVD or download or, you know, there's computer games and there's everything else. There's Netflix. You, I mean, you can pretty much, iPlayer, you can pretty much, pretty much watch what you want when you want to now. So to get a a, a, a good idea of, of what a new sitcom, I don't know, like Cuckoo gets now, it's hard because I could watch it tomorrow on iPlayer and does that count? I could watch it on someone's DVD. Does that count? I could watch it. Someone's recorded it on their Digibox in a year's time. I could watch it. That doesn't count either. So there's no ratings. Just don't hold any water anymore. But back in the seventies, they did. So you know, you you can't judge how audiences change. Um, they've just, as I say, fragmented beyond beyond repair now. And you co-wrote the television documentary What's a Carry On. And the radio special Thou Art Awful, which was a celebration of bawdy British humour through the centuries. So for listeners around the globe, how would you describe British humour? You've done your research for one thing as well. My God, I forgot that Thou Art Awful thing. Um, it's, it's very hard. To, I mean, British comedy for an alien coming down, it's so diverse. There's so much stuff that's been into comedy um, in this country. I always, my parents, which is not good enough really but it deserves a whole book really but my pat answer if if americans think that british comedy is benny hill they also think it's monty python and they're they're both pretty you know although python could get smutty and benny could get quite intellectual at times they're pretty much poles apart and all all the stuff in between that the on the buses and are you being served and all that stuff is always fairly smutty driven that, that americans think where our comedy is but you know we're also um sort of very clever stuff obviously in Chaucer and Shakespeare and all those sort of things so so we've got tradition of 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 sort of um of clever baldy comedy but it's always about bodily functions I mean I suppose that's the thing that the English or British comedy particularly is all about is bodily functions and, and and they're funny and we tend to laugh at those sort of things we tend to be quite shy of sex and we when we get embarrassed by by bodily functions so all our comedy is sort of based in in the comedy of embarrassment and all our great sort of sitcom characters are losers and you look at Basil Fawlty in 40 Towers or Captain Mannerman in Dad's Army Del Boy in Only Fools they're all they're all people with aspirations to get out of their their rut um and I suppose that's the the English way of doing things but even if you go back to Aristophanic comedy laughing at bodily functions and sex that is still present in the modern British sitcom, absolutely, yeah. But I mean, that's that's the human condition, isn't it? I, I think you know, however, however sort of sophisticated we think we are, there's always that sort of embarrassment, that naked embarrassment. That um, uh, it's the wor- it's the most cringeworthy thing. That's why Ricky Gervais is a millionaire many times over because his comedy taps into that embarrassment, and that's that's all there is to it. And and if you if you're if you're a clever observer of that. If you can can observe something and, and do it in a routine like Billy Connolly can or somebody, and you can talk to tens of thousands of people and, and, and make them think, oh, God, I've been in that situation, and, and make them laugh about it. It's a sort of therapy. You know, you, 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 you dispel the embarrassment by talking about it, and that's what comedy does. Hello, that's... Ricky Gervais trying to break in now to throttle me. I think, go on. But um, no, that's that's all comedy is. It's 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 a it's a, a mechanism to diffuse embarrassment, really. And having watched so many British sitcoms and written about so many as well, 
Do you think that there are certain ingredients that can ensure success for a sitcom? God, no, not really. Um, there's a classic cartoon, I think it was in the stages, in probably every theatre in the country, where, where basically it's like a whole long ream about this writer giving the plot and uh, saying how good the storyline is and the jokes are wonderful and the characters are so well defined. And the other person said, well, who's in it? And that's what the audience cares about. Is, is there a star in it, really? If you do a sitcom and in the 70s say, or the 80s and John Cleese is in it, you get an audience. It could be the, the greatest thing ever written, but you know, if you've got no name attached to it, you know, unlike you and me who actually care about comedy, um, they don't look about who's current you know, on the, the, the circuit. They don't know who's being sort of groomed, for want of a better word, by, by the big stars. He's, he's always had little great comedy actors that came along. People like Ronnie Barker, who pretty much groomed David Jason, for example. You know, But watching Porridge in the 70s, no one knew that old boy would become Sir David Jason, who, again, in the 80s and 90s, would guarantee shows to be made, some of which shouldn't have been made but because david jason was attached they got commissioned they got they got they got the green light um there's there's nothing i mean nobody i'll go back to python again i mean you know they're the same as any comedy writers they wrote to make each other laugh pretty much so john cleese and graham chapman would sit down and write a sketch and if john laughed at graham's line it went in and that was it that was all the audience they had each other and if that appeals to other people then all well and good, but nobody knows. I mean, it's just, it's the worst thing, it's the hardest thing to try and work out what's going to be funny. I mean, you know this, but because you just don't know. You know, one audience could be on your side completely, another night they could be completely against you. You just can't tell. So all you've got to do is just do what you think is going to work and keep your fingers crossed and hope that the rest of the country or the rest of the world even would like it too. And so speaking of the circuit, do you watch a lot of live comedy? I watch an awful lot of comedy. Yeah, I, I I go to things all the time. I just obviously the Edinburgh Festival is is on my calendar, which I tended to, to waste inverted commas, getting drunk with my mates. But um, this year I was there for about five or six nights, I think, and I packed in quite a lot. Not as many as you did, but I packed in quite a lot. Um, about twenty twenty odd shows. Um, so I mean you've got to, but I mean although although my comedy is mainly of the old school variety. Um, you need to keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on. I've become some old dinosaur, and I don't want to do that. I, I want to be sort of, you know, I, 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 I'm a great believer in, the, in once it's recorded, it's 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 contemporary. So, you know, I, I hate people saying, oh, I don't watch that, it's in black and white, or I don't watch that, it's silent. I mean, come on. You know, you've got to watch the greats to be great yourself, you know. So if you're going to be, for example, the boy with tape on his face, you know, obviously is going to is going to watch Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, and it may be 100 years old, but it's still funny. And, if you're doing sort of surreal, I saw some some things in Edinburgh this year, um, quite surreal, um, jet black uh, comedy groups. They obviously come from the Python and the League of Gentlemen tradition because that's what they're doing. So you know, I I, I don't I don't don't trust people who don't drink and and watch comedy because they they just don't get it. You've got to you've got to understand what you're doing. You've got to understand where you come from. You're not going to just suddenly beam yourself down and be this wonderful person who's going to be you know this new fresh thing because nothing's new um so um yeah I, that's a very long answer to your question i do watch comedy yes um i watch far too much comedy really but um is there such a thing no there's not such a thing no there's, there's not such a thing and so you were saying that you didn't think that there had been much change in terms of the way that modern british sitcoms had developed it's still the same kind of ingredients but would you say that there had been um, a change to the live comedy circuit over the years? 
I'm, I suppose so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Don Ward's comedy store is crucially important in this in the seventies. That it gave people the opportunity to stand up and you know, on their own and just do their routines. But you know, there's always there's always been opportunities for that. I mean. Music Hall and Variety, there were stand-up comedians, in inverted commas, but they were tended to be sort of people that would come on and do a bit of patter, sing a silly song, do a, do a, a, a wild eccentric dance and get off. But the, but the fundamentals are the same. You know, if you look at people, again, I always, do, I always do comparisons, but you look at someone not of contemporary, but of my contemporary years, someone like Ben Elton, for example, who, who was the sort of the, the anti-thatch sort of 80s boy, um, and was my, my big hero as a, as, a, as a very young kid. But, what he was doing on stage was not very dissimilar to what Max Miller was doing in the 30s, really. He was trying to get away with it. He was trying to push the boundaries. And the boundaries that Max worked against in the 30s were obviously stricter. But what Ben was doing in the 80s and 90s was exactly the same thing. you know. So so there's, it's just a case of people have either good material or they've got a lovely personality. I mean, someone like Billy Connolly, who I adore. I mean, his jokes aren't great. His jokes are fairly okay. But he's just... His, personality just to spend two hours in his company being talked at by him is brilliant you know ben is a is a real joke you know uh, wordsmith he's he's a clever writer um so it's the personality but but the, the, the basic fundamental of just some bloke with a microphone in his hand has not changed at all i mean you know obviously you had to shout a bit louder back in the old days but um but other than that it's the same principle um it's the material changes you have to observe what's going on around you so um but then that you know jokes about as i say bodily functions don't change uh, jokes about I don't know being poor or being rich doesn't change. I mean, the, the the fundamental human condition does not change, regardless of how many iPads one has. And your new book, which is called Forgotten Heroes of Comedy, is about comedians that have been forgotten or unfairly dismissed by people and shouldn't necessarily have been. Um, and so it's a celebration of great comedians. Is that right? By the way, that's word for word from your video. So I got that from you. Yeah, exactly, I recognise that. Yeah, that was ad lib, by the way, um, when I did that. But no, no, that was that is true. I mean, what happened? What's happened since? It, basically, um, it's brown bound, so it's a crowd funding thing. Because one, although I've written whatever it is, twenty four books now, um, this is a topic which is quite sort of a uh, hard sell for people because the word forgotten is like cancer. You know, you can't mention forgotten. Um, but it's 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 morphing now into into almost Robert Ross's Forgotten Heroes comedy because they're the ones I want to write about really, uh, and people obviously will, will remember some of them. And you've got to be sort of at least professionally employed at one point to be in the book. It can't be your uncle Fred who was funny at Christmas. You, know, you, you won't get in. But so it's got to be professional people. Um, but yeah, it's a labour of love again. I mean, they, they all are really. But this one is is one I've been trying to sell for a long, long time. And Unbound are people who 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 get um, well known writers who have pet projects they can't sell so Terry Jones did one Terry Jones did the first one um, Robert Llewellyn's doing one uh, Katie Brown's doing one so so they're not sort of you know unknown writers there's just people that, that have ideas that, that normal publishers inverted commas um, just will bulk at and Forgotten Heroes is one of those so it's turning into a sort of love letter again to the 100 and 125 people who I will write about, and I'm not saying they're all great. That, that, that were was that in my my pitch? Maybe it was. Yeah. Um, some of them aren't aren't brilliant now, but they were important at the time. Um, and I'm a great believer that you know even the good, and not so good, should be celebrated and remembered. I mean, because because you know almost it's it's important in the history of comedy to fail as is to succeed really. Um, 
So yeah, so that's that's the book. It's, it will come out hopefully if we get enough money. <laughs> Why do you think these forgotten heroes of comedy have been forgotten? Um, it's various reasons, really. I, I think primarily if you've been recorded, if you if you were of the era of TV or radio um, or feature films, and you had some stuff recorded that can be replayed. Um, if you're a fan of comedy, you, you will search that stuff out. But then again, you know, a lot of people, there's a, a comedian called Arthur Haynes who was a massive star in the 60s, um, whose whose body of work is pretty much, unusually for that time, pretty much intact in the archives, but was never shown, never re-shown. Just recently, Network DVD released some stuff on DVD, and Paul Merton did a show a year or two ago for BBC Four. So Arthur Haynes is, is almost gradually working his way out of the book at the moment. Um but um, there's another one called Harry Worth, who's a similar sort of era. Um, big, big star on TV. Um, not been shown again. So it's a case of, of just mopping up all these people who I would probably want to do a whole book on at some point, if I live long enough. But um, they've just have been forgotten, inverted commas again. It's, not, it's just, it's just a, a fun book. And the, the, the major sell for it is that each one will be championed by a contemporary comedy writer or comedian or comedy actor. So... Hopefully, people like Stephen Fry's and Danny Baker's and Mark Gators. I'm not naming you lads, just in case you don't want to do it. But um, um, there'd be there'd be one person per person. Um, so if it's like I don't know, I'm trying to think what I've been doing recently. That's called uh, a, a comedian called Leslie Cerrone, actually, who's um, 1920s, 1930s sort of uh, variety comic who was famous for his sort of comedy songs. One of Terry Jones's big heroes. So Terry will probably write about him. So it's it's that sort of thing. It's just it's just to sort of try and give them um, a bit of contemporary clout really they're all dead as well so it's not gonna be nasty and say that whoever is forgotten because he's not worked for 10 years I won't be that cruel but um, they're all dead and funny that's the idea and do you think that with the increase of social media at the moment and and YouTube and as you were saying before being able to download shows after they've been broadcast or even watch them on iPlayer do you think that comedians of the current generation are at the same risk of potentially being quote forgotten as the comedians of previous generations? That's a very good question. I think some of them are, actually. Um, I don't want to name them because they're my mates. But, I mean, there's there's certain people who are... I'll mention the pub afterwards. There's certain people who are on the circuit, and you know them too, who, who are working their cotton socks off being funny night in, night out, but aren't getting TV and radio breaks. Now, if that continues in 20, 30 years' time, no one would know who they were, really. Um, even apart from downloads and whatever it's it's this sort of nature that, that they haven't quite made it big enough to be on television um, and it's a crying shame because there's some really funny people out there who just don't get the breaks um, and there alternatively are some very unfunny people who do get the breaks and it's down to whoever you know gives them the, the job really so I mean yes there are potentially but I mean, I no names no patrols but some of my mates have said you know Rob I'm not going to be in this book am I because you know I go, no no you could be a champion of one of the other people um, but you know it's, it's a fear of comedians on the circuit that they, they do this. and you know there's loads of there's loads of really funny people out there who if you ask a, a group of people in the pub or you know outside a playground or whatever do you know X, Y and Z they wouldn't know who they were because they'd not been on Mock the Week or something so it's it's that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think there is a, po- a possible, when I'm 80, a next generation book. But then again, on the on the video, if you, you obviously did watch it, but on the video, um, Barry Cryer, who's also on board, who's like sort of the comedy god without the white beard, really, um, is uh, was doing a thing at the Bristol Slapstick Festival a year or two ago about Kenny Everett, of all people. And, and there were people in the audience who didn't know who Kenny Everett was. And I think, my God, you know, Kenny Everett... Who, 
was my generation Spike Milligan really and, and, and he's been dead 15 years but he was massive and he was so important to, to my age group so if there's younger people not you obviously but younger people who don't know who Kenny Everett is then my god what's going to happen you know I mean so there are a lot of people who are less less famous than him in my opinion who could be the next generation of forgotten yeah so again short answer is yes there are some people out there now sorry folks no names do you think that there's anything that comedians of the current generation can do to be remembered not necessarily in the way of appealing into a mainstream audience and getting a commission but from a different way of being remembered yeah a different way of it's not as famous basically um anybody in this book i'm doing at the moment i can i can name you at least somebody i know as a personal friend who would say oh, i remember him but that's not the point the point is that they're not remembered by the the mainstream audience um there are comedians and and you know back in the day who there were archives the family obviously you know love them and love their work and and there's preserved on 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 tape and and film and whatever um and yes youtube channels are all well and good but you know you've got to be a fan of the person to access that you've got to be a fan of the person to actually want to spend enough time invest the time to actually watch those things and support them so so that's your fan base right away it's very very small and that's that's fine that's a that's a loyal fan base you know you you can almost see them going back to the fans tour in 2025 or something but unless they're on bbc one at 9 30 they're not going to be seen by millions of people so you know, you need to be on Mike Myers Roadshow or you need to be on whatever. Um, for my mum to say, oh, I know him, he was, he was quite funny, I liked him, you know. She's not going to go to to a comedy club and see some bloke with a microphone. She's going to watch in front of a TV and the roaring fire and she'll know who he is because he's on BBC One. So it's it's that leap, really, of faith that, that um, TV um, people have to take to take a few chances and some people do i mean you know some people do break through who who are sort of breaking the mold really but not very many and there's 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 literally hundreds of people out there who are really really good who who are not getting the chance so, so what do people need to do to help with your book give me money please um now you go to www.unbound.com co.uk i think thank you yes not in that i should know this shouldn't i um and there's there's different levels of pledging you can pledge a thousand pounds it's insane pledge a thousand pounds and 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 make me write about somebody who you want to be in the book um and the one below that i think is 250 which is lunch with me and barry cry which would be very boozy so that would be fun um and it goes goes down and down down to 10 pound for the kindle download i think um so anywhere in between that just go to the unbound website search for my name or the, the forgotten hills of comedy and it will pop up and you'll see me with terry jones and barry cryer in a pub surprise surprise talking about comedy and read a little pitch about the whole project and that's all there but um it's it's as i say it's good fun i mean you know the great thing about Unbound is they 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 do have a, a sort of loyalty to their writers and their and their readers too, which is nice. So there's no middleman there at all. They actually it's all it's run by people who write books. So it's it's a real sort of um, um, understanding environment and very sort of nurturing environment to work in. So it's refreshing having been writing books for sort of like corporates and 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 big publishers for whatever it's been now 15 years or so. It's quite nice to sort of you know, be cuddled by Unbound. And so you studied English and film studies at the University of North London. Yes. Do you have any tips or advice for students? Oh God, um, it's hard. I, I think 
practicality one. I mean, you know, joking apart, because obviously I was going to say go to the bar a lot, which is what I did. But um, and you and but you make friends that way, so that is important. You know, just hang out or join the drama club, which I did, and you get a lot of ladies. Um, but um, it's it's leave home is is the primary primary because a lot of my friends, and I think my towards the end of my last year, I used to go back quite a lot to home. I think just get out of your house and 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 leave your 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 loving family behind you because you just can't get involved in student life if you're back and forth all the time. So um, yeah, get a good loan, um, get a decent accommodation near to the university, and at least two good pubs, and you'll have a great time. And do you have any tips or advice for people aspiring to write a British sitcom? Just don't give up in any any term. I mean, everybody I meet wants to be a writer. Everybody that interviews me tends to say I've got the best job in the world and stuff. And it is a, it is a job. It's hard work sometimes, and it's frustrating sometimes because I've got at least seven ideas I really want to do, um, and I can't sell them um, because I've asked to do the a third book on Sir James or a twelfth book on the Carry Ons, and that's fine. It pays the mortgage, but it's quite annoying for a writer to be sort of pigeonhole but everybody's pigeonhole be it an actor sometimes you, you'll typecast you know writing's the it's the most fun you can have with your clothes on really and it's 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 wonderful fun and it's wonderful um sort of the uh, what's the what's the one thing i didn't want to do when i when i graduated from university was to be stuck in a rut you know god god bless them but just do nine to five office job and you think oh god day in day out this is me for the next 35 years 40 years or something i mean what, you know, god please you know kill me now sort of thing so all i wanted to do was was to actually have every day different and which is what it is really every day is different in in, in major ways um so it's worth the effort so just don't give up is what i'm trying to boil it down to because I was reject- my first book was turned down by loads of publishers I, I wrote to every single publisher in the world pretty much I wrote to um, um, Chicago University who this was a book about the carry on films by the way um, the Chicago University who specialise in publishing chemistry books I wrote to them and they publish books they might want a you know, bit of left field I was very young and naive I, I could wallpaper this room in rejection letters um, so but just don't give up I mean again I know people that tried for a couple of months and just oh it's not going to work you know, I, I was trying to get published for four years or something, three years. And all that time, university years, I was studying and, and, and tuning what I had of any sort of writing skills. Um, but always I thought, you know, I had this five-year plan, which which if it hadn't been five years, I'd have pushed it back another five years and I'd still be pushing it back now if it hadn't worked. Because you just think, if you want to do something so desperately, just never give up on it. Um, because it's, it's, without sounding like, I don't know, Jiminy Cricket or something. I mean, you know, dreams are worth fighting for, and they, you know, once you get them, it's great.